Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Jenna Mateki, who shares a song that reminds her to slow down and celebrate all of life's moments. Here's more from Jenna. My name is Jenna Matecki. I'm a writer and the author of The Hours Before Dusk and Postcards from Jenna. And I would love to share with you my favorite song. The song is called Funeral Singers. I actually love this song so much that I love it in its original form and also its cover. The cover is what I fell in love with first, and that's by this ethereal electronic music duo named Sylvan Esso. And the original song is from this very like grungy 90s experimental rock band named Caliphone. It has this driving rhythm to it that's just absolutely hypnotizing. And then on top of it, there are these lyrics that are seemingly nonsensical, but there's actually a lot of meaning that you can attribute to them. For instance, some of the lyrics go something like, all my friends are half-gone birds, are magnets, all my friends are words, all my friends are funeral singers wailing. And then another part of the song goes something like, a spark is aching for the light, return, return, return tonight. And so there's this kind of overall theme of going back to the source and going back to the heart of things and this repetition of this imagery of friends and people that love you kind of being at your funeral. And that sounds really intense, but I actually look at it as incredibly hopeful. Like, hey, things always change. We know that. And things don't last. Everything's ephemeral. And you might as well embrace that and look at that as something hopeful to give you that freedom to make a moment what you want it to be. Thank you so much again to Jenna for sharing. Again, the song she mentioned is Funeral Singers by Caliphone, and you can order Jenna's book, The Hours Before Dusk, at pareabooks.com. Now here's my conversation with Taraja Morel. Honor it all, the good, bad, and everything in between. And if you need a little inspiration, just look at the extraordinary life of the late chef Fatima Ali. From Chopped to Top Chef to Restaurant Dreams, Fatima's star was on the rise. But after a devastating cancer diagnosis appended her plans, Fatima vowed to travel and experience all that she could with the time she had left. Yet as her illness suddenly worsened, Fatima pivoted once again, this time turning inward and to the page as a place to reflect on and relish in her identity, food, family, and life. The result is Savor, a collection of intimate vignettes from Fatima and her mother Ferize, guided by collaborator Taraja Morel, whose editorial prowess and shared values helped bring Fatima's compelling story to book form. Like Fatima, Taraja's appreciation for gathering around a table has informed how she moves through the world, and her own story, one of creativity, resilience, and love, reminds us of a universal truth. There's always more to savor when we pay attention to the things that connect us most. And in this interview, Taraja shared more about her collaboration with Fatima, how she thinks about telling stories in the digital age, and what she's learned about motherhood, love, and loss. Taraja's contribution to Savor is both quiet and compelling, and I felt that same thoughtfulness and energy linger long after our conversation ended. 
In other words, there's so much to savor in this episode, but I don't want to give too much more away. So with that said, here's more from Taraj Morel, co-author of Savor. Raja, and I am a native New Yorker, and I also very much love the country more and more these days. I value above all else love in all of its forms, whether that's my love for my young daughter, my love for my family, deep love for my friends who really are my family. As an only child, my friends are an extension of my family. And so I think that that extends to to togetherness and as you would expect since I am a food writer gathering at the table drinking wine laughing telling stories and that's it in a nutshell and a lot of travel whenever I can it's different now with a little baby but probably a nice exercise in wonder again oh yes and I feel such wonder watching her change daily and add new sounds and words and ways of expressing herself and her existence is an exercise in wonder for me. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have children, but I have a lot of friends who are starting to have kids and it's so interesting to watch them grow up. It goes so quickly. Everyone says that and then it happens to you and I don't know how this baby is 15 months old. I cannot comprehend the mathematics of it. I was reading the other day about discoveries of black holes and what's really going on in the time-space continuum. And I feel that time has just folded over onto itself in the last year and change two years even, have flown in a way that I could never have fathomed. Wait, that's so interesting. What were you reading, if you don't mind me asking? Let's see if I can do it justice, since this is certainly not my metier. I was reading a New York Times article about discoveries in outer space and things that occur in black holes that completely refute uh, hypotheses that have been acknowledged and accepted for many, many years since Einstein's hypotheses, I think. And it was a really good thing to read when I was trying to fall back asleep at night because I don't understand all of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I found it really interesting and, and hearing about time playing tricks on you and the illusion of time and and feeling like a speck in it all certainly rings true. I was also reading recently an extremely disturbing short story by Joyce Carol Oates called Zombie. And in the way that life sometimes seems to have themes that recur, this also talks about cosmic enormity. And I don't know if it's phrased exactly as the space-time continuum, but the enormity of the cosmos and our tininess becomes sort of an excuse for the protagonist to do very evil things. Wow. Yeah, it's so humbling to read things that kind of go beyond our comprehension and ability to see that we just don't have control over any of it. Yeah. Yeah. It can be heartening and it can be terrifying and exasperating, but I am really enjoying kind of returning to reading now after you know not reading much in the first year of the little one's life oh yeah do you read to her has she expressed any sort of interest in books oh yes I read to her yeah no she adores books she adores them well there's so much great children's literature so again that's not something I'm able to like directly participate in at the moment but I appreciate it yes me too very much it's funny to talk about 
fear and time at this point in the year. We're currently having this conversation in mid-October and the leaves are finally changing and it's starting to feel like that liminal space between a beginning and an end. Mm. And I'd love to kind of talk about hunger and yearning and how it changes for you towards the end of the year. Well, I guess I would have to respond by saying that I'm not really someone who tends to check out for a few days here or there and go on short little vacations or getaways. I tend to wait and power through and stay in the milestone and then try to really check out for a chunk of time. I'm not very good at taking my foot off the gas pedal or slowing down. So I don't even feel like it's an option for me to be perfectly honest as a single mom to a little one. It's just go, go, go. But I think that perhaps twice a year, I do allow myself to slow down. And that's usually in August and that's usually in December. And somehow October, you know, the changing of the seasons and the changing of the light and the changing of the clothes, they all feel like the beginning of that sprint. I mean, these months go so quickly, I find. You know, so did the summer months. It doesn't go quickly. I'd say January and February tend to not go so quickly. But yeah, I feel like I'm in the sprint for the season and then I won't really slow down until Christmas. It's always interesting to reflect on pace during this time of year. My birthday is in November. I'm actually turning 30 this year and I got engaged. And so it's been like, thanks. Super excited. Long time coming. Been together for eight years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) He's a good guy. And yeah, you know, I think just sort of thinking about yearning And my relationship to it has changed so much. And I'm also thinking a lot about family. So as you talk about your daughter, that keeps coming up for me as well. And I feel like it's actually a nice setup for the things we'll be talking about in this conversation. And before we dive into Savor and the book, I want to talk a little bit about your creative family. You know, you mentioned you're an only child, as am I. I'm always curious, you know, aside from like blood relations, how have you learned to build a creative family who supports you and your dreams? Gosh, that's such an interesting question because it's not something that I necessarily have thought about in such a specific way. You know, I've changed career paths a few times. You could even call it career, but changed direction in life. And in this what I still feel is this current iteration, which I associate with food. I've been on this path, I'd say, since 2011. I feel like my support system is often in my food community. I have made some extraordinary friends in this community who are my friends for life, I believe. And they are sounding boards and they prop me up and they encourage me when I feel down and you know as you can imagine as I'm sure other writers have told you writing a book a long format piece it can be a lonely process especially during COVID I'm sure and having them as touchstones who I could visit or talk to or eat with you know just make merry with made all the difference and then in terms of past the food community I'm just so lucky to have a couple of women, but a couple men as well who are my beacons of kindness and support and love, my family and my baby's family. 
It's like an ongoing practice to nurture those relationships and it's hard to find those people. It is. It's so... One in particular is someone I met relatively recently, I think about eight years ago, maybe less. And it was like a lightning bolt, like a a falling in friendship love and there's just no going back. And it's such a gift when that happens and we must hold on tight, hold on dearly. Was it at a moment that you needed it? I feel like the timing of those kinds of relationships are always right when they need to be. I suppose. I mean, when do we not need a rock? Yeah. <laughs> when do we not need a, a beacon of, of light and joy and understanding? But yes, I think just like with romantic love, you find there's a space for it when you find the right person. And it might not seem like there's space for it until you do. I think that's also true of friendship. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about friendship and gathering in a time where isolation has been so normal and where technology has also been such a necessary vehicle for that connection to happen or to be maintained. And You know, something I've asked a lot on this podcast is how the digital age sort of impacts our ability to live and work and create in these conditions. I know you mentioned that you pivoted directions a couple of different times. You were an actor. I believe you did PR for a little bit. And obviously now you're a writer. And so I'm curious to hear if the digital age influenced your ability to pivot and grow and also what it inspired you to let go of as you moved into this space? Well, I have to start by saying that I was on holiday this August with a dear friend and his sister is an actress. And while we were on holiday, she got several auditions from her agent or manager and she could just put herself on tape right there, right where we were, you know, with an iPhone. That just did not exist when I was an actor. You waited around and waited around. And the second you decided, okay, I'm going to do something for myself and my mental health and take a few days away, that was when you got the audition you'd been waiting for for a year. And I mean, I have zero regrets about that not being my life. And I'm so glad that my life took me in a different direction eventually. But so yes, that part of the digital age, I think is amazing that people can be present for opportunity while being remote. And in terms of my career, it's so hard to say. When I was writing more often for magazines, which I haven't done much since COVID, I tried to only write in print, write for print. There are exceptions to be sure, but that was important to me. I don't know. And then, of course, we have social media and the power and nuisance of it. And I think that is inextricable from one's career at this point. At least I feel like maintaining some degree of social media is important, but I also find it to be such a nuisance. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Totally. Can we go back to the print for a second? Was that sort of in retaliation to how fast things move for web publications or what's the rationale behind that? You know, I became a writer late in the game. At least I always felt I was late. I was in my mid-30s and I felt I had so much catching up to do. And it's such a wonderfully kind of clogged atmosphere in New York of so many talented writers here. And so I realized early on that if I wanted to tell the stories that I found meaningful, it wasn't going to be about New York chefs or restaurants. It was going to be further afield and I would need to travel for those stories. And 
whether I was traveling on my own dime and looking for stories or traveling as a result of being sent somewhere by a PR firm representing a region or a hospitality endeavor, I felt an immense sense of responsibility to create something that felt more hefty than a lot of online pieces feel. And whether it's correct or not, I still feel like there is a weight to print journalism it's a gratification thing for both the writer and the subject matter. I think that's what it comes to. It's not that the writing is better. It feels satisfying, I think, to hold something in one's hands, to look at one's story or restaurant or farm on the pages in paper and and see, God, all my hard work. Well, at least I can hold this thing in my hands and someone has seen it and maybe a few people as a result of this. So I think it's a combination of having been on both sides of it. I also worked in restaurants for so long, so I'm deeply loyal to the work that goes into them and want to honor that as a writer when I can. It comes from all sides. And it was probably you know, the perfect runway for you to be able to work on a project like Savor and really understand the gravity of what that meant to put yourself in the center of everything to tell that story? Yeah, I have worked on other books before. I've written book proposals for books that have sold. I, for various reasons, haven't wound up writing the whole books. But I was looking for something to be a first book that I could really sink my teeth into. And this opportunity came to me and and I jumped at it and asked to be considered. And it was a very different proposal, what was brought to me than what you've read and, and the final project. And I, and I think that's probably often true. These projects, whether it's a brick and mortar restaurant or a book, often have their own lives that are not what we think they're going to be. And certainly that's a metaphor for life itself, which is unfortunately so unpredictable, sometimes in very difficult ways in, in the case of Fatima and what she had to go through. And the book is a reflection of her having to change her goals so much at the end and wanting to live her last year to the fullest and travel and experience and drink in life and then having to once again recalibrate and change that. Yeah. I mean, it was just striking that throughout her entire life, so much of what she yearned to do was to share. And even that's true with you. I mean, this is her story, but there's a little bit of you in there as well. And I think before we really get into talking about the book, maybe we can have you read a passage. So this is from my introduction. The promised year from her terminal diagnosis had been cruelly pruned to four pain-filled months. Muhammad admitted that unless something changed drastically, Fatima didn't have long. I'll confess that I considered excusing myself. What can we achieve together, I wondered, under these tortured circumstances? And with so little time left, why does she want to spend it with a stranger? You'll see a lot of people here with us, Muhammad explained, as if reading my thoughts. Fatih's friends, my mom's friends, our family. I don't want you to worry. I've explained to them why you're here, and they understand that what you're doing is for Fatih. I don't want to intrude, I told him. At any time, someone can just ask me to step out or away. Yes, that's right, but for now, this is what Fatih wants to focus on. She wants to work with you. The rest, we just check in with her and follow how she's doing. She fades off sometimes, but she's there. She's still really there. So I stayed. I decided to give this young woman, whom I'd never met before, all I could for the week I'd committed to spending with her, whether a book came out of it or not. 
what would it cost me to keep this initial commitment to a dying woman? How often in life is simply showing up of such value to a stranger? If life and control were being torn from me, how much would I appreciate those who kept their word? I followed Muhammad into Fatima's hospital room. She was propped up in bed, wearing glasses, head shaven with thick black hair starting to grow in. Her 29-year-old face was symmetrical and void of makeup or wrinkles. Her dark eyes were haloed in black lashes. She was all the lovelier for her lack of ornamentation, but I sensed a sallowness had snuck into her cheeks that were meant to be a richer hue of toffee. I reached for her hand in greeting, and she didn't draw back, but serenely said, not a lot of touching, and my worried, withdrawn hands quickly found each other as if in prayer. Though I knew she was unwell, my first impression was that she exuded a sort of regality, as if it was not her infirmity but her distinction that made us orbit around her quiet, reclining frame. We three were together then for the first time, in the same positions we'd inhabit in every session for our one week together. Fatima in her bed, me on her right side by her ankles, Muhammad by her left hip. And then, so near the end, we began. I asked questions. She spoke softly. I listened. I recorded. Sometimes her faithful brother pressed her further for a hard answer, trying to stave off the inevitable sleepless nights and cravings for more clarity that stay with us when we lose those we love. After that first day, I left Fatima's room feeling exhilarated by her storytelling, but dazed by the circumstances, speedy and drowsy at once. My legs were heavy, as though I'd been trudging through sand, and I was thirsty for fresh air. I wanted to run out into the cool January evening. I wanted it to rain, though I knew it wouldn't because it's Los Angeles. I wanted to scream, open-mouthed, into a deluge as my skin was pitted by cold, sharp drops. Instead, I encountered Fatima's mother, Farizé, for the first time near the elevator bank, and she embraced me. She asked if we could find time to speak, and I told her that I wanted that too, that there would be time. I flinched inwardly as I said this, knowing that there would be nothing but time, that when Fatima was gone, it would be Farizé who was left endlessly. Farizé would outlive her daughter, and together she and I would sit and fill in the gaps, the history from which Fatima had sprung. Farizé, with hands like my own mother's, would be left surviving without cessation, forever trying to solve the broken riddle of why. It was on our third day together that I caught the thread and understood why I'd been summoned. There was, of course, more to this woman than tales of culinary school and exhausting services on the line in bustling New York City restaurant kitchens. More even than far-flung internships and a star turn on Top Chef. Fatima wanted to leave a different story in her wake, a deeper one. Less palatable, perhaps, but more human, more urgent. So I became a pastor of sorts, a receptacle of secrets, ones that I was meant to sort through and figure out how to impart despite the complications of her truth. Someone they all shared and whose words carried the weight of a separate entity beyond the family's grief or flock. I was overwhelmed yet committed to listen, to wait, to gently prod, to encourage, to lead them into loving corners in which they already lived. I want to talk about the tension of how much time you got with Fatima versus bringing a book like this into the world. And it was probably really interesting and difficult to navigate. You know, how did your time working on Savor and speaking with Fatima and her family change your perspective on what it means to tell a slow story? Well, I think it might bear noting that after our very brief time together, which was one week, I rushed to write the book proposal because I wanted Fatima to be able to sign off on it. So I went from this extremely intense but also quite slow week together in that Fatima was already extremely unwell and 
her speaking itself was very slow. And as she spoke, there was the constant sounds of the hospital, the whirring and the beeping, and they almost were like a metronome. And they kept time for us in a very slow rhythm. And we all slowed down. I mean, everyone who loved her had slowed down in a way to be there for her. And I took that rhythm as well. Of course, trying to pack into that one week as much information as I possibly could. And then the original idea for the book had been a fast book, a book that would take a year. And what actually happened, it was a much slower week together, a shorter amount of time that worked in a much slower way, although there was a looming end date that we couldn't exactly pinpoint, but we sensed was extremely close. There was a slowness to that time and almost... not almost, there was an expansiveness to it, both in terms of it seeming like it could go on. We found this incredible rhythm, this sort of slow, conversational, truth-telling space, and it felt like it could go on, and it felt like somehow she would go on Mm -hmm. until this was complete. But that was, of course, an illusion. Writing is such a solitary act in a lot of ways, and you know, I'm not sure if you had ever considered co-authoring any sort of book before, but what was it like to both invite one another into this space, if that makes sense? Because there's give and take yeah. there. I lost a friend, my best friend, when I was Fatima's age when she died. And I think in innumerable ways that prepared me, if not propelled me, to pursue this project. And... I know that sharing even extremely vaguely that that had happened to me, that I had experienced that loss, probably contributed to me getting this job, to her choosing me. And it certainly contributed to my navigating the experience of being in the hospital with her and her mom and brother and their friends, and then going on with the project. I did share of myself when Fatima asked me about myself. And there was a time when that part of our conversations was much more present in the book, but it's only ever so light, I think, my presence in the book at this point. And I think that's probably how it was meant to be. I mean, there's such an elegant balance between your voice and her story, but I wonder what was happening between the pages, so to speak. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry yeah. for your loss. Oh, thank you. Um, it's a strange one because I'm not a ghostwriter. If I was a ghostwriter, I wouldn't be credited, obviously. I was never supposed to be a ghostwriter, but I do feel sometimes a bit like a phantom in this project. Not a bad phantom, but you know, there was this feeling of being able to sort of observe things from perspectives that would normally be off limits to someone who was not a part of this incredibly sacred inner circle of loved ones. And that is a phantom-like presence in a way, because I think that's partially what compelled me to do the project, is that the love that was visible from Fatima's inner circle was visible, it was tangible, it was truly extraordinary. Were you afraid? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. I called my agent and said, what am I doing here? This is insanity. I don't know how to carry this. And my agent gave me good advice, which was get through the week and don't worry about what comes after. 
And when I placed that call to her, I hadn't yet kind of gotten deep enough with Fatima to understand what she was willing to share for the book and what she wanted this book to be. I can't imagine where to begin in that situation, what questions to ask. Even when something like this ends, you know, like how do you know when a project like this is done? Does it feel complete? Yeah, I think it feels very complete. I mean, I think the choices were how much of herself was she going to reveal to me and then how much of that would be in the book. And unfortunately, it does feel complete because I believe that every bit of what she wanted to share and did share I think we like sucked it to the marrow and sort of distilled it for the book. So I, I don't feel like there's so much more to say that we didn't say. Well, it's evident that Fatima was an extraordinary person and had an extraordinary story. And the reason for that was the community that she built for herself too. I want to talk about her mother. And before we do, there is a chapter that I think captures that relationship between them really well, which is hunger at the market. And I was wondering if you would like to read from that. So for anyone who's listening who hasn't read the book, the book is in voices, Fatima's voice and her mother's voice. Uh, And this chapter is in Fatima's voice, hunger at the market. We often accompanied our mother to the market to go grocery shopping, which I already understood as the first phase of every meal. We sat in the back of our rickety-dinged second-hand white Suzuki Kyber and drove to Kata Market with my mother playing a Stevie Nicks tape, singing loudly to the edge of 17. As soon as we pulled up to park, I heard a sharp rap on the window and my head snapped up. Large, brown eyes, the same size as mine or Moe's, but seeming larger because of the sunken cheeks beneath them, appeared framed in our windows a million miles between a centimeter of polished glass. The children put their hands out for money and then motioned to their mouths, the universal sign of hunger. Hello, hello, my mother greeted them good-naturedly as she and Muhammad helped my seven-year-old self out of the back seat of the car. How many of you are there? Well, us two and our cousins, a child said sheepishly. Go round them up, my mother told them, and off they ran, disappearing into the jigsaw of parked cars and crowds and child-sized crevices between overflowing shops. Sometimes they whistled to get each other's attention from afar, and suddenly there were eight, twelve, fourteen little and not-so-little people around us, shabbily dressed, hair uncombed, faces unwashed and thin. My mother looked around for the closest daba, a simple little local eatery serving big vats of food where cabbies and market purveyors all buy cheap, good meals. We've got fourteen kids, my mother told the proprietor. What are you going to give them, and what is it going to cost? The proprietor made up big plates of dal, curries, and fresh naan for the kids, one plate for each, and named a price for my mom, usually around 30 or 50 rupees, which included cokes for everyone. She paid and waited for all the children to be served their food while my brother and I watched the kids our age, laughing, poking each other in the ribs, playful and relaxed for a moment now that they knew their next meal was coming soon and that it was to be a fresh one and not foraged from a trash heap. I watched as this band of beggars' mouths watered, and instead of getting hungry myself, I felt my small throat go dry. Certainly, I was not immune to the seductive sense of Pakistani comfort food being readied for consumption. My mouth watered as I smelled fluffy biryani warming on the stovetop or shami kebabs for dinner at home. But seeing these hollow-cheeked kids so giddy and ravenous, I realized I'd never truly known hunger. Though I knew that money was hard-earned, not only could my mother always feed us, but she had enough to feed the small army of street kids. Fifty rupees was all it took, and every Sunday we were fifty rupees lighter, and those little boys and girls had full bellies for once. Not knowing how or when, I made a promise to myself that I would feed people. 
When you were speaking with Fatima's mother, the grief was probably palpable, but she too was somebody who was so formidable and resilient. And I loved that a through line throughout her relationship with Fatima was her constant encouragement to be honest and always do your best. And so I'm curious, you know, what did speaking with her teach you about honesty as a mother and as a daughter? Well, Farizé's grief is going to be her burden now forever. And I think she is such a strong woman. She is so formidable and so brave. And I think both from her and from Fatima and just the overall reality of this experience and story the lesson I learned over and over again was to just lead with love and not allow for anything else to come into play. Were you talking to your own mother or mother figures during this time when you were writing? Absolutely. I was talking to my, my mother is my best friend. We are extremely close. My mother is an enormous support to me, always has been. And yes, I was speaking to her while I was in Los Angeles with Fatima. I was speaking to her while I was working on the book thereafter. And then I was actually living with my parents during COVID. I was forced out of my home in New York City and I had to stay with them for quite some time. And I was working on the book during that time. So yes, I was absolutely leaning on my mom and talking to her and I suppose deepening our relationship. But it's hard for me to even think about how it could be any deeper we're so close. (laughs) That's such a gift. It is. You know, in an essay for DeRay, you wrote about single parenting your daughter, and I was really taken with the piece, but there was a line at the end where you wrote, but I'll keep feeding them if they keep caring for me and caring for my daughter, being there for both of us, no matter what. It's how I was taught to say I love you. So I suppose it's what I am modeling for her. But now it's not I, it's we. We love you. We need you. And so I guess this kind of goes back to the community and the chosen family we were talking about earlier. But was there anything unexpected that working on this book changed for you in terms of communal mothering, if that's a thing or if that makes sense? Well, I mean, while I was working on this book, I became a mother, which I never imagined was in the cards. And becoming a mother only makes more intense my compassion for the mothers that have lost their children because it is the unthinkable thing. It's the thing that we, as moms, tell ourselves is never going to happen. And we're afraid to tempt the fate by even thinking it. And yet it happens. And I think it's one thing to put oneself in a position of imagining what that's like and it's another thing to actually have the precious child that you would do anything for and gladly give your own life for and to consider the loss of that it's a grief i can't even imagine do you think there is growth afterwards you know i know that the people i love who have experienced extreme loss have found ways to go on I don't know if you call that growth or you call that coping or you call that simply the march of life. I'm not sure what you call that. I do think growth comes into it, but grief in its most intense form is not something that ever totally goes away. You might change where you carry it, I think. 
Did you feel a sense of grief when you were able to kind of step away from the page and understood what you had just done with and for somebody, for Fatima? Yeah, absolutely. Very much. It was confusing when she, I felt so close to her after our time together, though it was brief. And I felt very confused by not being present at her services, which were in Pakistan. You know, I I felt lost, absolutely. So I can't even begin to fathom what those who knew her for a lifetime were experiencing. I mean, I, I can a little bit because I also lost my best friend, but it's always different. I just wished she was here, you know, to help me, to guide me, to say, no, not like this, like that. Or, you know, I would make a joke now you know, like that kind of thing. I just wanted her guidance. And I got some of it through her mom and her brother. Yeah, it's an incredible amount of trust. Yeah. So you mentioned that you haven't really been writing for magazines, but just kind of thinking about the future. Do you think the way you're going to approach storytelling is forever changed because of this project? You know, how can writing bring you closer to the people that you love? I don't think it's forever changed. I think the themes of this book, though they are Fatima's entirely, are also things that I'm very aligned with. It's not an accident, I think, that I wound up working on this project. And there's a kinship to, I think, what she and I feel is important. And I know already that those are themes I explore in my own work. And if you even have read something like Dora, you probably see the similarities to begin with. Those are an extension of themes that have run through my life based on the way I was raised very much at the table. You know, food and wine and gathering was central to my entire upbringing. And so I know that they'll inevitably continue to be explored in my work. Absolutely. Are there any questions that are particularly interesting to you at the moment that seem to not want to go away? I think different ways of exploring the space between expectation and reality remain with me very much. And the way that we think things will look a certain way, we imagine our future, we imagine our family, we imagine ourselves, and how much of that is fulfilled versus creating a a new paradigm that we never could have imagined. And, you know, I never could have predicted, even relatively recently, that my life would look the way it does right now, that I would live in the home that I was born and raised in with my daughter as a single mom. None of it in my wildest dreams did I think was coming my way. And yet, this is my reality. And so I think that happens to be a very happy example of unpredictability. But as I said earlier, if we make space for things to be chaotic and unpredictable in a positive way, then we also have to know that life is going to throw things at us that are going to be extremely challenging that we can't predict. It's a vacillation between those two realities. And I think actually this is something I really took away from my time with Fatima was feeling that extreme love for her, that frankly sacred and holy presence of love was so breathtaking, but it came in tandem with the extreme pain and suffering of this young woman and the people who loved her most. And the realization that it's all so interwoven, you cannot have one without the other. You can't have the love of a child without the terror of losing it. You can't have the good without the dark side and that that is life. 
and somehow being brave enough to have both and be open to both is I think what I took from my time with her. It's a lesson we have to keep learning again and again as things in our lives change, as we change. But I think accepting that is just bringing us one step closer to really being able to see things as they are and hopefully embrace them too. Exactly. I think that there are parts of myself that I've really kind of sheltered as a result of my own experiences and wanting to protect myself. And I think that Fatima's message of of living, of experiencing, of just wanting more resonated so much with me that it opened me up again to the fact that take it all in, the good, the bad, take it all. You don't have to absorb the negativity. The hard things are just as much a part of life as the joyful things. So interesting. This has been coming up in so many conversations I've had recently. I just spoke with Ross Gay. Are you familiar with his work? Yes, I am. Yeah. He has a new book out called Inciting Joy. And its very thesis is that, is that joy and sorrow coexist. And I don't know why it's something that wasn't as apparent, not just to me, but to the conversation. I don't know if you would agree with this, but maybe in the last couple of years, it just seems like, yeah, this is our new rallying cry that one can't exist without the other and that's okay. Maybe it's just us getting a little bit more honest. It's refreshing to talk about. It is refreshing to talk about. I think we're fed this notion that if you follow the rules, you will find yourself, you know, the recipient of the good and the rewards. And I don't know. I don't know if that's totally true. And it invites so many other questions about morality and how we affect our futures. Because there's no reason that bad things happen to good people. Why in God's name did this young woman have to suffer? And yet she did. And the chaos of it all is so monumental. But there's nothing we can do but accept that we can't control everything. As you said, it's all out of our control. Fatima handled it based on what I've read with such grace, although I'm sure in her private moments, there was a lot of reckoning. Very graceful in what I observed as well and all she expressed. I don't know if this is too much for you, but if there was a question that you were able to ask her now, what would it be? Oh gosh. I mean, of course I want her to be happy with the book. I do believe she would be. And I always strove for this to be something that I believed she would be happy with. And I do believe she would be. But of course, as a writer, of course, it would be nice to hear that. But I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, apart from what's it like where you are now? (laughs) I feel like she would give you a really good story. I know she would. She was so, she had such vision in terms of explaining her circumstances. The last day with her was really extraordinary kind of getting to see things through her eyes a little bit as she explained what she was feeling and seeing. I mean, there's so much more that we could speak about in terms of this book, grief and love. But I think on the subject of seeing things through Fatima's eyes, I would love to close things out by having you read one more chapter from Savor, which is the last chapter, my dream abbreviated. My dream abbreviated. Instead of my bucket list book, this is the story of my abbreviated life, short but nonetheless possessing secret love, joy and pain, adventure and hard work, luck and its opposite. I am a daughter, a sister, a friend, a Muslim, a Pakistani. I'm a chef. I'm queer. 
I suppose if we must find a word to define my attraction to people's spirits rather than the bodies that contain them, I'm a person who is dying. Even now, I don't know how to unravel which of these identifiers is greater or less significant than the others, but the one that I want least to be associated with is that I am dying. This book is my way of still fighting, of surviving beyond my expiration date, of hopefully helping other small brown girls who feel strange, who kiss their best friends and find they like it, but in doing so hate themselves due to their desires, to forgive themselves and be themselves. Perhaps if parents could look at their children and ask, are they kind? Are they giving? Are they honest? And finding that they are, feel there's reason enough to love them no matter what else they are, then there would be less suffering. This book is the only way I can think of to replace the restaurant I dreamt of opening, a vehicle that could close the gap between colors and face, contradict assumptions, teach people tolerance and curiosity about my beloved Pakistan through their taste buds. This is my way of saying goodbye, of letting go, of hanging on. This is my way of being free, of judgment, of pain, of cancer, and leading with love even as I take my leave. was my conversation with Taraja Morel, co-author of Savor. You can purchase Savor anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Taraja on social at Taraja Morel. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram, along with my own personal Instagram at Rachel Schwartzman and more. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.